Osiris production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Just coming off of our Halloween episode, but things still feel kind of scary. There's lots of intense energy around the midterm elections, and everyone is dealing with that in their own way. This podcast might help us cope, or not. Either way, on Tuesday, November 6, some percentage of Americans will go to the polls. And it's not just open congressional seats they'll be voting on either. There's thousands of state and municipal positions also in play. I'm talking about governorships, state legislative seats, and other offices right down to dog catcher, if they still have those. Consider this. Some 36 states will elect governors this year. So much has already changed since the 2016 election that things are especially precarious. Now, I suppose America has always been precarious. This thing we call democracy is an experiment, after all, and participation is crucial. The Grateful Dead are a crucial experiment of their own, one that keeps on, you know. In their initial 30-year run, the band was more or less apolitical, but their ideological compass did have a true north that allowed them to balance collectivism and individualism without coming across as hypocritical. They had these high ideals, but also ugly contradictions, just like America. And sometimes things got a little dicey, just like America. Inclusion is another American ideal. It's also key to the dead's nonpartisan appeal. They were all about treating people with dignity and respect, regardless of their personal background or political views. They opened up a space where anyone could let their freak flag fly, whether that freak was Wavy Gravy or Ann Coulter. There's so much mistrust and hostility in our current times that it's easy to lose sight of one another's basic humanity. But... Inclusion has a few rules. Number one is that fascists have no place in a free society. There will be no apologists or enablers on this podcast. At any rate, we have some great conversations lined up in this episode. I'm thrilled to have Robert Costa, star political reporter of the Washington Post and big-time deadhead, on hand to offer insights into how the Grateful Dead fit into the world of politics and American culture. But first... Let's check in with my co-host, Eduardo Nunes. Eduardo, let's do this. Here we are again. This time we are so very close to a momentous election that could very well decide the fate of our republic. And we're also taping on the eve of the Brett Kavanaugh vote, which is all but a done deal in terms of him being seated. Now, I don't want to downplay the serious allegations against him, but I do have an issue with anyone on the Supreme Court being named Brett. (laughs) Like... That's definitely on the list. I don't know if it makes the top 10 items on my list against him, but it's definitely on the list. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of things I don't know if this nation can come back from, and that just happens to be one of them. Do you think Brett Kavanaugh is a dead fan? I peg him as a Steely Dan guy. Well, uh, I mean, we all know how he feels about UB40 now. Um, (laughs) Them's fighting words. (laughs) So I bet you that Brett Kavanaugh definitely told women he was into the dead when he thought it would help him yeah he seems like that kind of guy and again nothing against steely dan one of my all-time favorite bands i should probably start a podcast about steely dan we'll call it showbiz kids yeah 
But we're here to talk about The Grateful Dead and this episode specifically talking about The Grateful Dead's influence on the world of politics, if influence is the right word, which is weird because these guys were inherently apolitical. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, absolutely. I think the two dominant strains of political thought in The Grateful Dead collectively, I think it probably varies a little bit by each individual member, but the two things that come across are a commitment to totally decentralized anarchic rule. And if there's anything close to an ethos that comes out of their music, I think it's almost what we would call almost a classical liberalism. Not necessarily a modern one, but it's a classical liberalism right. in the way that there are significant overlaps with libertarian thought and with this sort of fierce commitment to individual freedom, but collective responsibility, which is that, you know, there's so many points of tension and so many conflicts within the dead's worldview. And that to me is an inexhaustible one. I mean, I could spend days thinking about it. And I guess that's just another way this band reflects the character of America. Let's talk about the libertarianism a little bit. We know that members of the band and the crew like to shoot guns. Mm -hmm. living the cowboy lifestyle on the ranch. We know their stance on the legalization of drugs they're staunchly in favor of, mm -hmm. but their overall concept of liberty seems pretty old school. Like you said, it's rooted in the idea of individual autonomy, the right to pursue happiness. But what about their collectivist side? The idea of coming together to solve problems in a way that satisfies the need of the larger group. That sounds like socialism. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting to me when you get into these cultures that are trying to carve out their own space in society. And the presumption is that the rejection of societal norms means that they don't favor any kind of structure. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it seems to me, even though the dead didn't want to necessarily police their scene, they clearly were driven by a sense of a sense of empathy, I guess, for their fellow humans. They believe in the supremacy of, of individual responsibility and autonomy, but also that we can collectively fail individuals and that as a society, we should be trying to talk about ways to move past that. You know, it's funny. The band has a reputation of being pretty great capitalists, but for the first couple decades, at least, I don't think a single one of them was particularly motivated by making money. And they always seem to want to do well by the people within the organization, like they were paying way above market rate for their roadies and their office help. And I think that's probably why they didn't make money for quite a while. You know, the overhead was pretty tremendous. And they always wanted to give fans some true value as well. They started their own in-house ticketing, mail order. Uh, the Wall of Sound, which was kind of a groundbreaking and extremely expensive PA system that they lugged from show to show in the mid-70s. So it's clear that they would invest where they needed to to make sure that everybody had a great time as a collective. But at the end of the day, everyone is still responsible individually for their situation. And even though they didn't endorse any specific party, politician, or policy idea, they were very open to discussion about how to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. I came across the story of Jerry Garcia talking to George McGovern on an airplane, and, you know, they were just having a great time. McGovern said, hey, if I get elected, I'll have the Grateful Dead play the White House lawn. And Garcia was like, yeah, we don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, to be a passenger in seat 12C and be able to overhear that. Yeah, this band was always flying high. Didn't matter who they were sitting next to. 
the organizing principle of the band as a business seems very, very close to anarchism, right? Yeah, and it's hard to tell how much of it is just sort of false modesty or kind of self-effacing, that they didn't accept that they were the organizing principle of their scene. But then I keep thinking back to scenes in um, Festival Express, yeah. uh, which is a great documentary. If anyone's listening to this and hasn't seen that, they should absolutely uh, go watch it immediately. But So Festival Express documents the band's choo-choo train adventure across Canada with some of their peers from the 1960s music scene like Janis Joplin and the band. And they'd all get off at various stops along the way, Canadian cities, and play these shows. And sometimes there weren't very many people there, and other times there was this impossible demand. And it was sort of in vogue post-Woodstock to demand that shows be free. And Mm -hmm. there were these sort of like, uh, what must have seemed to the performers, these kind of manufactured mini-riots that would happen and people would get angry at the police. And there's footage in there of Bob Weir at the time, very loudly defending the police and basically saying no matter how strongly you feel about your right to be in this venue you know someone worked to rent the venue to set up the sound to to get us here and the police are just there to do their jobs and now some guy's head is busted open because people think they should be able to get into a show for free yeah i mean they're affording the cops the same respect that they would anybody else of course they turn right around and dose the cops with an lsd spiked birthday cake That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> Send those Mounties on a little trip. You know, I think some of the band's political stances, as you mentioned before, really do vary from member to member. I'm thinking in particular of one of their two primary lyricists, John Perry Barlow. Now, he was a libertarian, but every once in a while he would drift into some form of conservatism and then come screaming back. He worked on Dick Cheney's 1978 congressional campaign. Yeah, that is, that is one of the most fun facts about the Grateful Dead. And, and it's not like... You know, the next 50 facts are boring. True. Right? There are so many interesting facts about the dead, and the fact that John Perry Barlow worked on Cheney's congressional campaign is just mind-blowing. But overall, he seemed fairly reasonable politically. He was opposed to cronyism and wasteful spending and government encroachment in people's private lives. He co-founded the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is an organization that stands for digital liberty. Sometimes I think they have a few blind spots. Uh, You know, libertarians are staunchly pro-private property, but in the digital realm, I I think it kind of gets a little bit slippery when we start talking about Mm -hmm. intangible property like copyright and other IP. But in general, I think that he was interested in charting a future where there was more respect for individual autonomy. And look, before this guy died last year, he actually started another organization to protect the interests of journalists. I suspect he would have been absolutely horrified by the by the alignment of kind of small government libertarians and, uh, and evangelicals. And speaking of horrifying, one person who happens to be a deadhead is Ann Coulter. <laughs> Good transition. She actually wrote a Billboard op-ed about how she's a deadhead for life. Like, what gives? Yeah. I mean, I think she comes by her dead fandom, honestly. She makes it very clear that she views the dead as an affirmation of everything she loves about America. The band explicitly addressed this. I know I know there's an interview with Garcia where he basically makes it very clear that he has no issue with Republicans liking the dead's music. I suppose that extends to Ann Coulter. She is just a fascinating case because... She seems to be motivated more by the goal of upsetting people than by any set of core ideological values. And yet she finds her hippie bliss twirling around with all these other left-leaning folks at Grateful Dead concerts. 
Because yeah. I assume that, you know, the bulk of the audience is still is probably pretty liberal, right? I would think so. Although I seem to recall when John Fishman from Fish um, endorsed Bernie, I remember thinking, you know, I need to go to Relics and read the comments here. Because I think there's a fair number of kind of old heads whose skepticism for government and institutions ultimately has, has led them to a kind of political nihilism. And I think the party that most closely embodies that is uh, not the Democratic Party today. Well, even coming out of the 1960s, there was pretty aggressive persecution of certain members of society by the federal government. The FBI actively surveilled folks in American society Mm -hmm. who protested things like the Vietnam War, who maybe thought that the industrial military complex wasn't the way to go. You know, the Kennedy assassination probably embedded a fundamental cynicism in the body politic. Mm -hmm. And then in the 80s, you had shit like COINTELPRO. So let's face it, some of the activities of the American intelligence apparatus has probably led to today's paranoid blathering about the deep state. Yeah, that is not a worldview that I subscribe to, but applying the legal reasonable person standard, I can sort of see how someone might progress that way. Yeah. It doesn't explain Ann Coulter's worldview to me. Well, not a lot does. (laughs) But one of the tidbit that I always found fascinating about her dead fandom, and I, I confirmed this today because I had this little kernel kicking around in my head, especially for folks our age who remember the Lewinsky saga and and the person named Linda Tripp mm-hmm. who had made recordings of Monica Lewinsky talking about her affair with Bill Clinton. And Ann Coulter was one of the first people to hear that. In fact, she heard it before Ken Starr did, partly because Linda Tripp knew that Ann Coulter had a tape deck and the reason she had a tape deck is because she had all these shows on cassette that she kept around and that she still listened to in, you know, the summer of 1998 when most people had gotten rid of their tape decks. Wow, that is sheer madness. <laughs> but, you know, on the liberal side of the fence, there's also a, any number of high-profile deadheads, right? You got Patrick Leahy, the senior most member of the United States Senate. He's, a, he's probably the biggest deadhead mm-hmm. around. There's a comment I came across about Senator Leahy at a dead show. So he's in the audience. He's having a good time. And a call comes in from from the White House, somehow they tracked him down. So he picks up this giant 50-pound cell phone, and the guy goes, uh, Senator, Senator, turn down the radio. And he's like, that's not the radio, it's Sting, who was actually opening uh, for the Grateful Dead. Right. And um, as it turned out, the person that wanted to talk to him was then President Clinton. And, you know, he finally got on the line. And later, Leahy said that Clinton was totally jealous because he wanted to be at the show, which makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, which, which they, were, they were frequent guests at the Clinton White House, as I recall. I think that some of these folks really get it. Leahy said that a Grateful Dead concert is about a lot more than the music. He he said it was an experience, like being in a giant family of thousands of people. But they did visit the White House uh, on more than one occasion. I know they spent a lot of time with Al Gore. Here's another crazy thing. Tipper Gore, big time dead man. And she's also a drummer. Yeah. And she's the reason we have uh, parental advisory stickers. Yeah. I mean, the Grateful Dead may have been unrepentant drug users, but at least they didn't sing Fuck Like a Beast. Mm-hmm. There's that great quote uh, that always stuck out to me. It was in this Rolling Stone interview in the 80s, and the guy interviewing Garcia sounds sort of like a credulous, you know, very naive person who was surprised to find out that his hippie icon was not particularly partisan. And, and Garcia says something like, constantly choosing the lesser of two evils is still choosing evil. And he goes on to say that what we do is, as American as lynch mobs, America has always been a complex place yeah there's another quote from garcia where he says that we must all face the fact that our leaders are certifiably insane or worse 
but doesn't mean we can't hang out with some of them. Yeah, yeah. And the, to go back to the Clinton White House for a second, the Al Gore connection is also interesting there because he was the highest ranking kind of political voice in support of environmental policies. And I think that's the one exception to the dead's quote unquote apolitical stance, which is that they were early and forceful and staunch supporters of environmental protection. Um, and they viewed that as an essential function of society and of government. And there was a time when that was not partisan because, you know, lest we forget, Nixon passed the Clean Water Act, right? Yeah. Nixon created the EPA, which is now led by a coal lobbyist. Right. RIP EPA. Um, and speaking of Richard Nixon, the band actually sent the president a letter back in January 1974 when Nixon was under an investigative cloud not dissimilar to the one that Trump faces currently <laughs> and the letter said dear Mr. President while we are of vastly different socio-political persuasions several of my associates <laughs> and I had our first political meeting in our 10-year history we concluded that your involuntary removal from office would produce a decidedly negative result on the American lifestyle if in fact anything so diverse could be so collectively described therefore our focus was to arrive at a solution of what is now your problem and can be everybody's problem we pass our solution along to you with only the the remotest expectation that you will carry it out since while it is brilliant it is not extremely logical we have concluded that the problems referred to above would disappear as if by magic were you to chrome the entire white house <laughs> and it's on official grateful dead letterhead and everything i feel like i remember a very sweet reference in the, the dark star book uh which is another sort of essential dead reading item and it's an oral biography of jerry garcia i seem to recall that in the early 70s they were living up in stinson beach maybe and and as he was sort of winding down a little bit from the dead and playing more with moral saunders and um hanging out with david grisman and peter rowan and really being kind of a jack of all trades musically he would spend his mornings watching the watergate hearings that's a hoot and it was just this communal sort of thing and and i was thinking about that the other day during the kavanaugh hearings what it seemed as though you know all of dc was was kind of rooted in place or if you were out you were staring intently at your phone and and watching this event live i had this very sweet thought about how in some strange way that unifying principle of public issues and what our public figures do is important to who we are collectively yeah and it's sort of sweet to think that that hasn't changed despite the erosion of all these norms and institutions. We have to hope that the collective response to that is sufficient to restore those norms at some point. Thankfully, we still have the vote. I don't know how much longer, but I would encourage anyone listening to exercise that opportunity in November, which yeah. is when we publish this episode. Hey, I don't know where to slot in Al Franken, the former senator who was run out of town on yeah. allegations that uh, I don't know how they compare to Brett Kavanaugh, but I do know Franken is a huge deadhead. He and his uh, comedy partner, because Franken started off as an entertainer, he and his comedy partner, Tom Davis, were responsible for getting the band on Saturday Night Live in the 1970s. And the Grateful Dead did not really want to go on television, but somehow Franken and Davis convinced them to do it. And they struck up a friendship that led to Franken doing comedy during set breaks at Grateful Dead shows. Franken's the, the kind of guy who can tell you with incredible specificity which version of Althea has the best guitar solo. That is a beautiful skill set. You know... After Jerry Garcia died, the band did drop its no political endorsement stance and backed Barack Obama when he first ran for president. And the story is 
Phil Lesh's son, who actually plays in Phil's current band, was working on the Obama for America campaign as a volunteer. And word kind of made it through the campaign that Phil Lesh's son was a volunteer. And they kind of prodded him to see if he could get Phil to play a benefit. And when Phil heard that, he was like, oh, I think we need to do better than that. And that was the impetus to get the core four back together. And they ended up playing at Obama's inaugural ball as the dead, which was pretty significant. Mm -hmm. And when the band played their final final shows for the Fare Thee Well concerts in 2015, Barack Obama actually issued a presidential proclamation. That's right, he did. Here's to 50 years of the Grateful Dead, an iconic American band that embodies the creativity, passion, and ability to bring people together that makes American music so great. Make America great. I guess that message went in a different direction. I think it's probably time to do a segment. Welcome back to another edition of Feed Your Head. Imagine the time before fake news, when Americans enjoyed common standards of veracity and the unbiased reporting of facts, when there was a certain level of trust in the media which we, the people, relied on to hold our elected officials accountable. This was, of course, before the unrelenting assault on truth via grammatically challenged tweets from a sitting president-slash-pro-wrestling heel. From 1962 to 1981, Walter Cronkite was perhaps the most trusted voice in America, beamed into households nightly as chief anchor of the CBS Evening News. Over the decades, Cronkite earned a reputation for straightforward reporting, even as he covered such difficult topics as the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the Vietnam War, and Watergate. In these turbulent times, Cronkite was part of the basic fabric of American unity. He was also a deadhead. In fact, both Cronkite and his wife Betsy were Grateful Dead fans and were also personal friends with the percussionist Mickey Hart. For what would have been Cronkite's 100th birthday on November 4th, 2016, just days before an election that would devastate the long-cherished American ideals he embodied, his friend Mickey Hart posted a touching note on Facebook. Happy birthday, Walter Cronkite, my dear friend. Walter and I enjoyed a 20-plus year friendship before he passed away in 2009. We first met back in 1987 when I did the score for the America's Cup event he was narrating. We hit it off instantly and I invited him to his first Grateful Dead show at Madison Square Garden. During set break he came backstage and he said to me, I was thinking of a thousand reasons to leave early, but I can't think of one now. Walter was also a drummer, he loved to drum. When we first started playing together he would often ask me, Mickey, when do we know we have the groove? What does it feel like? On the day he got it, three or four years later at one of our jam sessions, it was a very special moment to be a part of. It's hard to explain unless you're a drummer. He just had to be there. I have the fondest memories of Walter and his wife, Betsy. What would Walter Cronkite think about the current state of American politics? Or the heinous attacks by politicians on the journalistic profession? We'd like to think he'd be saddened and outraged, like anyone who truly loves this country must be. Do you know of an interesting or notable deadhead to profile on Feed Your Head? Drop us a line at info at deadtomepod.com and maybe your pick will be in a future installment. Hey, 
I am delighted to welcome this episode's special guest, Robert Costa. Robert is a national political reporter for Washington Post, a political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC, and the moderator of Washington Week on PBS. He's also a huge deadhead, and we're thrilled to have him here to talk about dead politics. Join me in welcoming Robert Costa. So a big reason this podcast exists is to look at the various ways that people become deadheads, even if, like me, it's a late onset phenomenon. So, Robert, how did you get on the bus and what do you recall about that initial experience? It was the greatest thing to become a Grateful Dead fan because it was kind of a long journey to get there. I mean, it wasn't just like I found the dead or my parents were into the dead. I had to kind of go on this musical journey of starting with Dave Matthews Band, going to see them in Philadelphia growing up. I'm 33 years old. And, you know, you got into Dave Matthews hanging out in the parking lots, then you get exposed to fish, and then you figure out this whole jam band scene, what's it about? And you find the Grateful Dead. And I would go see Phil Lesh and Phil Lesh and Friends uh, play in Philly. And when I went to see those shows and you met these older deadheads, who were so into it in a way that was kind of like gray-haired, seasoned deadheads. I was just kind of taken by the whole scene, taken by the music, Mm -hmm. and I I just had to keep getting into it. You mentioned Phil Lesh and Friends. Lesh worked really hard in that period to expand the appeal of the Grateful Dead's music and their repertoire beyond the original Deadhead scene, and I think that brought in a lot of people like yourself. Oh, for sure, and they were kind of accessible, too. I mean, they were these legends to me, but I would go actually try to like do meet and greets with Phil Lesh. I got to know his manager, a guy named J.C. Juwan, who's out in San Francisco area and I I was writing for a, a little paper in Philadelphia area called the Bucks County Courier Times and I got to interview Jeff Shimenti. Uh, oh sure yeah he's played with just about every post Jerry configuration yeah back like I'm talking like 2003 uh, to interview with them to interview him about uh, I, my, the first dead show I ever saw was wave that flag tour it was um, it was called the dead I believe in right. 2004. And it, I love that was a cool experience to really see a dead show for the first time. Of course, I was too young to ever see Jerry and all that, but to see Jimmy Herring up there and, and, and Phil and, and so many of the other guys, it was just a special thing. Yeah, I can imagine. So, did you start off as a music journalist? I did, and I started out at age sixteen covering music, and it was that's how I got into journalism was music because I loved bands like the Dead and, and other rock bands and alternative rock and jam bands, and I didn't have any connections and I didn't have money, so. Writing, being a music critic enabled me to get free tickets to shows as long as I wrote an article about it. And it was just the ultimate way to learn how to write on deadline. But it was also really a way to see bands. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I was the music editor for an alt news weekly in Burlington, Vermont for a number of years. And as everyone knows, that's the hometown of the band Fish. And I got to see a ton of shows, too, and I completely agree about editorial boot camp. Writing about music on deadline is an excellent way to get those chops down, for sure. And it's fun to know that a music writer can become a world-class political reporter. It actually taught me a lot about politics in a weird way, because when you're covering rock stars and you're sitting there meeting Phil Lesh or talking to members of of the, the dead... You really learn about how celebrity works and how you have to navigate people's entourages, their press operations. They're, they all have fan bases, just like every politician has a voter base. And mm-hmm. there's the, the swing voter who maybe only occasionally dips in. Then there's also like the hardcore voter who goes to every rally. It's really like music and politics. 
I've never really written about this, but they've it, music journalism taught me so much about how to handle kind of the infrastructure of modern p- political uh, reporting. And there's a lot of ego, too, as well as factionalism within the music scene, although the dead kind of contradict that in their way. As a left-leaning type, I've always been fascinated by the dead's appeal among folks on the right. And you worked at National Review, so you've probably got a better insight into the conservative mindset than I do. So what do you think is behind this phenomenon? I mean, is it really any weirder than, say, Paul Ryan listening to Rage Against the Machine? I think it's a great question because when you think about kind of like the wetlands preserve in New York City in the early 90s, there was a whole progressive scene that built up around the jam band scene and the dead. Mm -hmm. And there was like a progressive liberal strain in elements of deadhead land. For sure. But at the same time, in that same nation of deadheads, you had kind of the libertarian, anti-government, leave me alone, let me do what I want to do, live and let live, live free or die types. Yeah, in the Northeast, for sure. You got this kind of flinty... New England vibe with fish, and you got it with the dead in California, with San Francisco in the 60s. So I always see deadheads as they're either kind of a libertarian Republican or a really progressive Democrat. And they've, they kind of coexist along those, those, those same planes. The coexistence is fascinating to me. I mean, you take a guy like Tucker Carlson, who apparently had seen like 70 dead shows, and he even interviewed Phil Lesh back in 2005. And it was a surprisingly good conversation, although he didn't take the bait whenever Phil would try to get him to imagine the world along more collective lines. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder how these fans came to be deadheads in the first place. Another thing that gets talked about a lot in today's political conversation is the idea of privilege. And although I would never disparage someone for any of the circumstances that they happen to be born in, it seems that a lot of deadheads, particularly fans who came up in the 80s and 90s, found out about the band while they were attending Ivy League universities. Do you think there's a connection there? I've thought about this, actually, because I always wonder why do some of these small liberal arts schools have such hardcore dead fans or different like fish fans or whatever. I have a theory. Maybe it's wrong. My theory is that people who get into college and study hard, they're usually kind of obsessive compulsive types at some level, maybe not fully, who they really study hard. They keep, they keep track of stuff. They're to-do list people and they like data and they like to kind of track baseball scores or they like to track – yeah. Just music in general. And so, like, that's when you saw set lists was, was college kids keeping track of things. It was just... No doubt. There's an organization to the live and let loose community. It's a really fascinating thing. I mean, it, it's definitely a stats-based culture. And as I kind of fell into this world myself, I found myself powerless to resist that aspect of the band, too. You know, I have that giant book in hardcover of, like, every single Grateful Dead performance ever. And, you know, I don't sleep with it under my pillow or anything, but it's a pretty bitchin' reference to have. No, it is. It's... I sometimes just spend hours on archive.org or looking at through different dead things and just, just figuring out, oh, wow, in the 70s, they weren't playing Franklin's or they were playing uh, Bertha all the time in the first set or they they would never play St. Stephen for years. What was that about? And then looking at the different stats. I mean, it's just always fun. And Yeah, it's cool. Like, look, they brought Birdsong back after all these years. The dead, it's such a, it's a unifying thing. Like, I, I love that talking politics and, and stuff sometimes in this country is so divisive, but you can always talk music with people. And I mean, I, when I was at my last dead and company show, I saw Al Franken was there and nice. 
know, now he's gone from the Senate, of course. But I mean, he was a huge Dead fan. But I saw like I saw like Trump supporters there as well. They weren't wearing their Make America Great Again caps, but Republicans like the Dead too. Yeah, it's clear there are some interesting dichotomies and contradictions in the band's ethos that seem to reflect the dichotomies and contradictions in American society. Uh, the fact that they have fans from across the political spectrum indicates a kind of mediating function in their scene. Uh, is that what's missing from our current civic landscape? Like, how do we make America dead again? I, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think the dead, they're of politics sometimes. I mean, they've been part of democratic causes here and there, but they're somehow above politics too, the music. I mean, that's what I always find fascinating about the dead is that there's the dead, and I've had the honor of meeting the, the guys and, and hanging out with them briefly at some Dead and Company shows, and Bob Weir especially has been really generous with his time here and there. But there's like, to me, there's the dead as the members, and then there's the music, and the music somehow is part of who those men are, but it's also, and, the, and of course, Joan and others and uh, Mountain Girl, but... It, there's also like the, the music is somehow separate and apolitical always to me. It doesn't. Yeah, I totally get that. Uh, conventional wisdom has it that the dead were apolitical, but I don't know if it's entirely accurate. For example, they were early champions of environmental issues and they certainly played a lot of cause oriented benefit shows in their time. So how would you map the dead's political consciousness overall? Well, it, I think it's interesting about the timing of that question because I got the chance back in uh, June to review the new book, Fairly Well, by Joel Selvin, oh, about yeah. the, the dead post-Jerry and how that's all played out. Yeah, I actually just read that book, and man, a lot of it's really heartbreaking. No, it's very heartbreaking. I mean, I didn't know how sad it was, especially in 95 to like 2000. I mean, those guys were, they're human beings. They're, I mean, they're legends, but they're they are human, and they went through a lot. And That's why I brought that up, is because when you ask about the dead's political consciousness, I think so much of it up until Jerry's death was tied with Jerry Garcia and just the way he Yeah, absolutely. He wasn't he was an icon and he was almost his own political symbol as an anti-establishment musical genius bringing huge communities together and post Jerry you've seen the guys in the band kind of migrate to different political causes but there's not some like huge identity politically with the band. Yeah, I definitely think that's right. Of course, in their initial run, they outright refused to endorse any specific politician or movement. Uh, but on the other hand, they could totally hang with high-ranking officials right up to the executive branch. I mean, we know about all the visits to the Clinton White House and stuff, but I'm also interested in how they brokered the 1978 trip to play the pyramids in Egypt, which apparently involved a lot of behind-the-scenes activity at the State Department and within the Egyptian government. And this is, of course, around the time of the Camp David Accords with U.S. President Jimmy Carter and Egyptian President Anwar Sadat. So, uh, you know, they kind of had some global diplomacy going on there. So, you know, that's pretty sophisticated, and I'm sure it still is. They have an operation behind them. I mean, they got smart guys working for them. Matt Bush, who manages Bob Weir. I mean, these are savvy guys who know how to handle politics and I was actually trying to get the dead to come visit the post nice. when they were in town one time just to come see it. And they clearly follow politics. I mean, talking to Weir, he follows politics. He's engaged. The dead have a lot of friends on Capitol Hill. I mean, I think they rely on their deadheads out there like Senator Leahy, uh, who's at so many shows when I'm at D.C. I, see, I saw Senator Leahy and you'd see, of course, Senator Franken um, and others would just show up because they love the music and everyone wants to help the dead because they know they have good intentions. They come across as good guys and they are good guys. Yeah. The, I have a strange connection, though, with this new band, The Dead End Company. I, I've, I knew John Mayer years ago, briefly. 
No kidding. Before he was a deadhead, I brought him to play my high school outside of Philadelphia, Pensbury High School back in 2004. He played my prom. <laughs> wow. John Mayer played your prom. Yeah. You know, I have a lot of respect for him because he wasn't a dyed-in-the-wool deadhead. And as a matter of fact, uh, his motivations are... In keeping with my motivations for starting this podcast, I've heard him talk about when he was in high school, how the kids who were into the dead were just not the people he wanted to hang out with. And I was like, oh, I totally get that. And of course, then you become a huge fan later. And he's actually playing with Bob Weir and the Rhythm Devils in Dead and Company. And there was a lot of skepticism at first. Uh, what I like about it is he really brings his own personality to the music and doesn't just try to be another fake Jerry. I mean, we have plenty of those, right? Uh, but he tries to drive it to new places with every show, and I think that's important. No, it's great for him. And I think you're so right. Mayer, 15 years ago, was playing acoustic shows in Atlanta, and now he's a member of the Dead in Company. And it just shows you the dead don't have hard and fast rules. Like sometimes people say, oh, the dead are this, the dead are that. The dead are what the dead want to be at whatever moment it means, whatever it means. And that's always been the case. John Mayer is the last person you would have thought would be a member of the dead, but he's he's kind of worshipped the music. He's really learned the music. He, he brings a real blues edge to it. And I think a lot of people understand that they may not love every lick he plays, but the guy is diligent. He has learned the music. He tries. I mean, and uh, he's brought a new audience because a lot of people may not know the dead who are under 40 years old and they now will go see Dead and Company. Sure. And he's very respectful of the legacy that exists, but he also takes chances. He's not afraid to play things differently than Jerry might have played it. He's not a clone. I can see him pushing himself in the Dead and Company sets that I've seen. And that also must be refreshing for the older guys in the band, you know, to feel that this still has some life in it, that it can still go to new places. So you mentioned going to see Dead and Company shows or other Dead reunion shows and uh, the political figures in the audience. Do you ever get a chance to talk to any of those folks about your mutual fandom? Um, here and there. I mean, I've had conversations over the years about kind of the anti-establishment music scene and how it plays into politics with different activists. And I know even like people like Steve Bannon, the president's former advisor, President Trump's former advisor, very controversial. He's the kind of guy who keeps an eye on movements, whether they're political or not, and the power of movements and to enact social change and to be powerful forces in society. Movement politics is not that different sometimes from movement music. I covered Senator Sanders' campaign and some of the grassroots organizing. It was very much like a Grateful Dead parking lot. Yeah. I mean, you'd have people with their causes finding unity, coming together. And there's just an overlap that's hard to nail down. But there's the way people are drawn to music is the same way sometimes people are drawn to ideas. And those ideas galvanize them to either travel on the road for months and follow a band or to go out to Iowa and live for six months to help a candidate. It's, to me, it's like almost a similar part of the brain. So let's look at that a little more closely, the motivations behind ideologies. Right now, we're seeing the rise of nativism in politics, but the dead embraced musical cultures of all kinds, often from around the world especially Mickey Hart, who is one of their percussionists and a real advocate for embracing different cultures. Do you still think music has a role to play in this way? Oh, it definitely can. Music's so critical for cross-cultural understanding. I have the real honor of working for PBS part-time. I host Washington Week on, on PBS and uh, yeah, on Friday nights. And it's I love PBS because they do so much for the arts, and we need to have an emphasis on the arts in this mm -hmm. country. Some of the best events I go to in Washington are for 
painting or live music or drama and everyone regardless of their political stripe or whether they're in the media can come together and unite around the arts and it just it's just a, such a powerful thing and it shouldn't be underestimated and I, I just see it again and again with PBS or when I just go to a, a fish show or a dead-end company show you see that kind of vibe that's out there yeah well now I'm thinking maybe Trump can get Kid Rock to play at the North Korea demilitarized zone or something and that'll just be like why not it's a great idea I mean if they can play the pyramids they can play the DMZ <laughs> You know, it's great to come together around the arts, but I don't know if everyone's going to be at the table. There's just so much anger and mistrust in national politics at the moment. And the mood seems to be a lot different than the ideals that the dead put forward. But then again, maybe that hostility was always there. I came across a quote from Jerry Garcia where he justified his non-engagement in politics because to him, politics were just another form of war. You cover this stuff on the day-to-day. I think our listeners would be interested in how you avoid burnout with so much hostility in our political discourse. You got to listen to a lot of music. (laughs) Seems like a good place to start. I'm serious. People ask what my secret is. I'll go take a walk for an hour every day and I'll put on just like a classic show that's available on my phone, like a Cornell 77 or just like just something that I just jam out to or just instrumental music, like uh, explosions in the sky or something and just take a walk around and decompress because we live in the social media cable news era where I'm on cable all the time. I'm writing all the time and politics is everywhere and you just got to chill it out sometimes. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time.